Hello, you are listening to A Way Up, a podcast where we'll look at what it means to be an effective leader and how to tackle any situation and manage change despite all the existing chaos. This podcast is brought to you by Away and Storm Production Studio. My name is Anna Kovaleva. I am an entrepreneur, a co-founder of a startup. I'm also a mom, and I'm going to be the host of this show. Have you ever felt that you are not good enough for something? Maybe not good enough to call yourself a leader? Trust me, you are not alone. Even the most successful leaders are full of self-doubt, and at some point, they start to question their abilities. But it turns out that leadership is not always about changing the world. Sometimes it's about everyday moments of positive interpersonal impact. Today we're here with Drew Dudley. Drew is an internationally acclaimed leadership speaker, educator, Wall Street Journal best-selling author, and the founder of Day One Leadership. In this episode, we are going to speak about the role of empathy And together, we will re-evaluate the very meaning of leadership. Sweet. Thank you so much for agreeing and saying yes to taking part in our podcast. We are really happy to have you and you promised us to tell stories. So let's start. All right. First, if we randomly met at the coffee place or somewhere else, how would you define yourself? Like, what would you tell me about you? You know what? Honestly, if we met in a coffee shop, It's very hard for me to explain to people what I do. And so it's one of, like getting to know people is actually kind of difficult or a little bit intimidating for me because how do you explain what it is that you do? And it's one of the first questions people ask, like what do you do? And I started to realize that what that question's actually asking is how do you make money? And so the answer to how I make money is I talk for a living. But people are like, oh, you're a motivational speaker. And for some reason that always bothered me, motivational speaker, because I thought like, it, I think people when you hear motivational speaker, and this may be because of my generation, you start to think, oh, Matt, uh, Matt Foley uh, living in a van down by the river from that classic Chris Farley SNL sketch. And some of you out there know what I'm talking about. For others, go look up, you know, Foley motivational speaker Saturday Night Live. Uh, or they think that you're trying to be uh, Anthony Robbins, uh, right? So I think that what I try to talk about is I'm a leadership educator, which tries to encapsulate the fact that I have been given the opportunity to stand in front of people and tell stories and provide insight that seem to impact people positively. But I started doing that not because I'm like, this story is motivational and inspirational and it'll make other people better. It's because I want to be useful. I was taking a test recently and there was a phrase. There was actually a task. Continue a phrase. A leader is. So how would you answer? A leader is. Depends on what year you ask me, what month you ask me, what time of day you ask me. Like, that is such a... The reason leadership is such an interesting topic is because everybody thinks that whatever definition out there isn't quite good enough. And so we need to find our own way to spin it. And... How I'd answer it now, leadership is striving every day to close the gap between the person you want to be and how you are actually behaving. That's personal leadership. Now, if ask a CEO, what is leadership in the context of their job? Or if you ask them in their office compared to say, that evening with their kids, there might be a different answer. My definition of leadership, I'm not saying it's the only one and I'm not saying it's the best one. I'm saying it's the one that I've chosen to spend my life talking about is, closing the gap between 
how you want to behave and how you are actually behaving. Personal leadership is acknowledging the gap exists, recognizing that it's your responsibility that the gap exists, and having a plan every day to close the gap just a little bit. That's leadership. I teach a process on how to close the gap. I also try to teach people that it's okay if the gap is never fully closed. One of the really difficult things about being human is we got to get up every day and take on a challenge that、Admit、we know that we are humans. <laughs> a challenge that we know we won't win, which is to close the gap between who you want to be and how you're behaving. Because for what it's worth, if there is no gap between who you are and how you want to behave, you should probably have higher expectations for yourself. Like people who say、oh, that gap doesn't exist for me, the rare ones, I'm just like maybe it doesn't. But your standards for who you want to be are probably lower than they should be.、Um, I think we should always aspire to be more than than what we think necessarily we we're capable of, because that's always going to make us the best possible. Now I really do sound like a motivational speaker. I just like realize that in this particular moment. How have you started your path in leadership field, and what makes you passionate about it till now? I started by accident. I think that most people, if you talk to them, like who are who are doing something that they really, really like, what I found is it is not an insignificant number. As a matter of fact, it could be the majority. That when you ask them how did you end up here, they're like, I I don't really know. I was going somewhere, and then this path emerged. I didn't plan for it. I took a couple steps down it, either because I had no choice or I figured why the hell not. And the next thing you know, you're in a totally different area. And what happened was. I got involved in, I guess, what I've come to call leadership, because of a girl. Wow! I think at the beginning of the movie March of the Penguins, he said, "Every great love story begins with an idiotic act." <laughs> I went to a, I went to a tiny little liberal arts school. There's only about two thousand people there in a tiny little town of five thousand. So when the summer came around, everyone went home. It wasn't like a, a big university where it was bustling year round. Like it was pretty dead for about four months in the summer. But a few students would always stay to be research assistants or do something on campus. Like let's say, less than ten percent of the total student body, and one of them was a girl that I was super into, and I was so head over heels. Like she was my sun, my moon, my stars. I think her name was Megan.、Uh, so Megan and I didn't work out. I hope she's listening now. It's <laughs> funny is the guy she married was actually speaking at the same event、uh, that I was at yesterday, which was a really really、oh、odd. Uh, little connection. <laughs> yeah, no, it's just that she was sticking around for the summer, and I wanted to stick around too. So I needed a job, and the one job I was qualified for, which involved graphic design and layout, which I had done in high school, also had this little charity, this little charity campaign attached to it, because the university couldn't figure out who should run it, and they're like, "Well, this job is here all summer. Let's just throw it in on that one," and it was for a charity called Students Fighting Cystic Fibrosis. And so I took that job, knowing I hated fundraising.、Uh, I wasn't big into charity work at the time, because I wanted to stick around for the summer and be near a girl. And the girl didn't work out, but the charity campaign turned into something that transformed <laughs> my life. And we ended up breaking a bunch of records, doing it for a couple of years, and I went on to become the national chair of the charity. And that was when I started to have to do training for the senior leadership. So what happened was I was trying to teach volunteers how to raise money, and I did not realize that I was starting to develop leadership development theories. So I stuck around to try to impress a girl, and while the girl never really ended up making a major sort of connection in my life, the things that I learned because of sticking around, the organization with which I got involved, and the things I started doing, that 
started me down the path. Well, first of all, we gotta say thank you to Megan. <laughs> so we, we have an amazing leadership uh, coach right now. Uh, my question is that, uh, when did you understand that this could be a career? Yeah, wow, that's a good question. You know what? I didn't realize it could be a career. It was offered to me as a career and I took it. Does that make sense? I got involved in to run this campaign, all right? This this campaign to raise money for cystic fibrosis research. What I came to, and I had the greatest time that you can imagine because I was surrounded by brilliant people. Like leadership mantra, when you're dumb, surround yourself with, with smart people. When you're smart, surround yourself with smart people who disagree with you. And I had this amazing group of people who we agreed in all the right ways, we disagreed in the most constructive ways. And what happened was, I thought that I loved raising money. Like we've set all kinds of fundraising records and I thought, Mike, I love being someone who raises money and I was good at it. And if you can get people to give you their money, other people will pay you to do it. And the University of Toronto came to me and I, sorry, I, I went to them, I saw a job posting, we met, they hired me to raise money for them. And while I was raising money for them, I was also on the side doing leadership workshops or doing these workshops for the charity on the side at other schools as well. I was still doing that because I was still involved in the charity. And what happened was the dean of the dean of students at the University of Toronto saw a couple of these workshops that had nothing to do with my fundraising job. And he said to me, the thing about the what you're talking about in terms of leadership is that it's applicable to everyone. It doesn't require power. It doesn't require position. We want to create a leadership program that is accessible to students that way. And we'd like you to come and do that. And that's how it happened. Someone came to me and said, the way that you are talking about leadership, it isn't dependent on theory. It isn't dependent on like an academic bent. And it isn't just all about how to manage other people and be in charge. It's about how to make an impact. Let's come and build a program based on that. That's how it became a career. And if you want to know how I ended up moving from the classroom and moving from creating an, like a, a co-curricular program to actually, when you ask what do I do, I said I'm a speaker. It's because while I was building the program and we were doing, I don't know, uh, you know, a hundred different workshops or classes or activities a year within the program, I started connecting with these students. One night, a student sent me an email. And it said, you have to watch this. And it had 19 exclamation marks after it. And my response was, you use one exclamation mark. You're a grown up. Stop doing that. But he said, just watch the damn video. And so late one night, I'm emptying out my inbox. And I come across this email. And I think to myself, before I, I move this email out of the inbox, I respect this student. I'm going to watch it. And this might have been two months later, right? When you go, you spend that, like you're there late. You're emptying your inbox. I watch it. It's a TED Talk. The first TED Talk I had ever seen in my life. And it was by Sir Ken Robinson. And it was called, Do Schools Kill Creativity? And Ken Robinson, an expert on education, started talking about the flaws in our current education system and the way that it hurt students, despite the fact that it was an incredibly important system that we should revere. It's a system that we should be so grateful for. But just because we're grateful for it doesn't mean that we should ignore its shortcomings. And he did a talk about the problems with modern education. And it was the first time that I realized something that I've gone on to talk about a lot, which is when we are young, I think we are taught that if we want to be impressive, if we want people to look at us and respect us, 
what we have to do is is figure out some way to make them look at us and say, oh, oh wow, I, I can't do that. What Ken Robinson taught me is that the most powerful thing you can do for someone sometimes is to allow them to look at you and say, oh my God, I thought I was the only one. Like I thought I was the only one who thought that, who was afraid of that, who was scared of that. And I just, I, there was this man, this, this man who had been knighted, who was on this stage talking about things that I thought I was the only one who thought it. And so I started watching TED Talks. This was, I think, 2009. So they had just started being a thing. And of course, down the rabbit hole I went. I loved it. I started using them in my workshops in the program. My students started to joke about how much I loved these, these silly talks. And then one day that same student walked into my office and he said, Ted is now doing conferences around the world, not just the one big one. There's one here in Toronto and they have 12 speakers, but two of them are open nominations. I, I think you should apply. And I said, oh, oh no, I'm just a part-time speaker. And the problem was, for a long time in all of my work, I had told my students, you can't, you're not allowed in this program to say you're just something. You're not allowed to use the word just as a diminisher, which is something we do a lot. We don't even realize it. But leaders never allow someone who they know is a person of worth to diminish themselves in front of you. Anyone listening, if someone you know is a person of worth, if someone you know is amazing, starts diminishing themselves in front of you, it is an act of leadership to not let them do it. The problem with telling, saying that again and again is that every now and then someone will throw it back in your face and say, well, you're not allowed to do it either. And it's so annoying, <laughs> but he, <laughs> call, he called me on it. My students called me on it. And when I was, cause I was scared. Like Ted was a big deal at that point. Like it, it started to peak in the early 2010s, right? Like it was, it's still an important thing in this world, but man, it was a cultural linchpin for a while there as well. And so it was intimidating to be a part of it. And my students decided that instead of trying to convince me, they would just make it happen. And so they started a campaign to nominate me uh, to appear at, at Ted Toronto. And I got a call the day after I quit my job. I was sitting waiting for 1-800-GOT-JUNK, like the company that picks up all your stuff to arrive and empty out my apartment because I was moving on in my life. And I got the call saying, look, we don't know who you are, but we got nominations for a bunch of speakers and some speakers got two. You got 43. <laughs> Clearly there's something going on here. And my students had started a Facebook campaign. And of course I wasn't on Facebook at the time to get me to speak. And that's how it all sort of started coming together. I gave a speech, walked off the stage and an agent grabbed me in the hallway and said, would you like to do this for a living? And I said, here we go again. Somebody walking up to me and saying, here's a dream job, do you want it? And I said, sure, yeah, I bet you I can do this full time for a living. By all means, try to make it happen. And you know what, I didn't think it was gonna happen. Sure enough, it happened and I quit my job or, you know, I quit my job at that point. I wasn't really quite sure what was next. I was forming a consulting company and all of a sudden I did this TED talk. An agent grabbed me. They started sending me around the world speaking at major corporations. And then a year or two years later, TED.com put the video online. By the end of the weekend, half a million people had watched it. And then, you know, by the end of the year, a million people had watched it. And now it's like six or something. And none of it was planned. I know that's a really long story, but I, I just wanted to point out that at every stage of that story, I, tr I fought really hard against me getting what ended up happening, right? Like I always said no. 
at every step of the way. And, you know, I talk about like, why do I talk about leadership like that? Because I have seen what it does. Like that student was like, nope, you don't get to diminish yourself in front of me. The other guy was like, you know, the agent was like, no, I believe this could work. And I was like, nah, I don't think so. When I put out the book, I put it in a drawer until my girlfriend at the time found it, brought it out and made me promise to take it to a publisher. Like at every step of the way, I have done my absolute best to screw up the opportunities or to refuse the opportunities (laughs) that were brought to me. And all of them were individual moments where people said, I am going to do something to empower somebody else. And that's why I am where I am. Wow, that's very motivating. It's about actually the people believing in yourself a way more than you believe in yourself sometimes. Yeah, and also realizing that if we're not going to believe in ourselves, why don't we be that person for someone else then? Because like, look, it's like, you know, I've done, part of my work is based on psychology. So I know the psychological roadblocks to us being good to ourselves, but man, we will be good to our friends. Uh, I couldn't agree more. Um, I was giving a speech on a conference uh, a couple of weeks ago and my main philosophy was believe in people around you because sometimes like people really need to be to be seen, to be heard, to be inspired, just to know that they actually can do some stuff, you know? I think too that helping people feel seen allows you to see yourself a little bit. I know we got a million questions, but one of the underpinning concepts of, of the work that I do is that I'm trying to help people answer a question that I think we don't, and I think it has an impact on everything. And can I ask you the question? Sure. Why do you matter? Why do I matter? Because I think the best things in life are actually created by people who matter. Yeah. Have you ever been asked that question before? No, never. How is that a thing? See, that's like I'm from the education system and I'm going around asking adults, often among the most motivated, driven, well-educated adults on the planet, why do they matter? And everybody does like, I don't think you realize this, but you did a double blink. When you ask someone that question, they do a very quick like double blink, which is their brain going, whoa. Um, And then you start to think about it. But everybody does this like, I've never considered that before. And the problem, I think, is that we don't give ourselves evidence that we matter. We hope to matter. We hope to lead. We hope to make a difference. And I want to talk about how to plan to do that. If you have kids under five and you're listening to this, ask them why they matter and listen to how incredible their answers are. But once we send our kids off to school, they stop believing that why they matter is up to them to determine and it's supposed to be evaluated externally. And because most of us spend 20 of the most formative years of our lives in that system, a lot of us never unlearn the lesson that why you matter isn't up to you to decide. As a matter of fact, you saying it is arrogant and self-absorbed because we have a system that tells you why you matter. What I started to realize is that once you leave that system, one, it's convinced you that someone else has to evaluate why you matter and it no longer gives you a way for someone else to tell you. And we never learn how to evaluate and provide ourselves with evidence that we matter. So my work in leadership is actually about creating a behavioral psychology process that allows someone to say, these are the things that I want to add to the world every day. These are the values up to which I want to live. At the end of the day, I want people to be able to point to the stuff they did that mattered. So you can't just ignore it. You can't pretend that it's not there. I asked a student, when I, like, why do you matter? He's the first one I ever asked. I've been in education for 13 years. And his answer was double blink. Well, 
I don't yet. That's why I'm working so hard. That is an unacceptable answer to get from anybody that you care about. It's, it's, it's unacceptable to hear someone say, I don't matter yet. But I realize the education system, because it's all about evaluation and where you're going to get to using what we give you here, I realize that people are thinking, oh, I need to prove that I matter so someone, I can matter so someone will give me the chance to. Why do you matter? Why do I matter? Yeah. I wasn't prepared for that when I first started asking it, and you should be. Double blink. <laughs> I plan to matter. And so how am I going to matter today? I don't know for sure yet, but I have a plan that means I will matter in one of six ways at least. And so why do I matter? Because I have a plan to matter, which means I never miss an, a daily opportunity to actually do so. So having a plan, having an intention is actually a part of a success, right? Yeah. As a matter of fact, it wasn't even about intention because here's the problem with intention. It's conscious and our brain gets distracted uh, all the time from the conscious things that we want to do. So the key is to consciously identify what it is that you would like to put out into the world and then do it enough times that you start doing it unconsciously. So that's the key piece. So I teach something called the leadership test, which is a series of six questions every day that if you answer three of them, you are being, you are continuing your leadership momentum. So that's really what I talk about is I'm like, okay, this is all cool that we want to look at leadership as individual moments of impact. That's all great. But how do you actually go about doing it? And because life will distract you and school will distract you and work will distract you. We need to find a way to subconsciously drive us to live our values because consciously trying to live our values is better. It will help, but it isn't enough because consciously we will get distracted. Consciously we will be driven to where the most rewards are, not necessarily to where our values are. And so what we have to do in, in essence is trick our brain, trick our brain into helping us be the people that we want to be because we won't necessarily just do it by saying today I'll be good. Yeah, you might be, but then tomorrow will distract you because leadership isn't in these big moments. Leadership's in consistent moments. And so, yeah, it's not just about being intentional. Really, it's about being intentional about who you want to be and then being disciplined in teaching yourself to do it without thinking. And what are the six questions, if I may ask that? Can I tell you the story of how it unfolded or just one of the six questions? No, I love stories. Tell us. It all actually started with this one student who, um, who gave me a quote that I'd never heard before, but it blew my mind. He came into my office and he had been dealing with a, a challenge all week. I think it was one of his first ever adult problems. And I define an adult problem as the type where you have two options. One where you can get what you want and one where you can be the person you want to be and they're mutually exclusive. Like you can't be both. You get what you want or you're the person you want to be, you got to choose. And we all deal with these. And he was doing it. It was one of the first times. And finally on the Friday, he announced to me that, damn it, it is a lot easier to stand up for an ideal than it is to live up to it, isn't it? And I'm like, damn, Kyle, like... That's so smart. And it turns out that it was Adelaide Stevenson, the former justice on the US Supreme Court. But it made me say, well, why don't we try? Like, how cool would it be to do a social experiment that demands we actually live up to the stuff we claim to stand for? It's like an old joke someone said, if you want to quit drinking, start doing sober what you claim you'll do drunk. 
it will very much change the way that you behave. And we said, all right, let's pick what we want to stand for. I told them you have the power to pick a value, any value, whichever one you pick, everyone on this campus is guaranteed to do it every day. But you only get to pick one that's guaranteed. And they picked impact. And the thing about values is we never define them. So I insist that anytime someone throws out a value word like integrity or accountability or equity or impact, I say, I want you to imagine someone walks up to you, says English is not my first language. That word does not exist directly translated into my language. Could you explain what it means in the simplest English terms possible using the words a commitment to? So I said to my students, impact is a commitment to what? My students said, it's a commitment to creating moments that cause people to feel as if they're better off for having interacted with you. And I said, that's an awesome definition. Now go do it. Every day you have to create a moment that does that and you have to come to my office before you go home and tell me what it was. And they came every day and they were awesome people. So they always had one. I watched them think about it right before they came into my office. Like they looked back over their day and they picked a moment. But what they were using is this value that they cared about, that they said they wanted to be part of their identity. They were using it to evaluate behavior that had already happened. What leaders do is they use their values to drive your behavior, to impact your decision making in the moment. The reason I use questions is when I went to the psych department and said, can you help us out here? I need something that keeps us focused and keeps us from being distracted. They taught us two pieces of behavioral psychology. One is called the Zagarnik effect, which says that things that you haven't finished on your to-do list take up a more prominent spot in your brain than things that you have finished. We all know that. We all know that stuff, yeah, that stuff that's not done bugs you until it's finished, right? Didn't know there was a scientific term for it. But the big thing is we don't really understand exactly how uncomfortable our brain is when we've got something left on our to-do list. It is much more disturbed or much more disturbs a tough word. It is much more upset and uncomfortable than we think. The second thing they taught me is called the question behavior effect, which says if you ask someone a series of questions about a particular behavior, they're way more likely to actually do that behavior. You don't have to tell them to do it. You don't have to ask them to do it. You just have to ask them a bunch of questions about doing it. So if I asked you in the morning about generosity, what's generosity mean to you? Who's the most generous person you've ever met? What's the most generous act you've ever witnessed? I ask you a series of questions about generosity in the morning. You are way more likely to engage in acts of generosity later that day. So basically it means this. Questions drive human behavior. Unfinished tasks make you uncomfortable until you finish them. So you know what we're going to do? Effectively, and this is a strong word, but kind of torture our brains so they do what we want. We were going to create a question that was carefully put together so that you couldn't answer the question without doing something. The question demanded taking actual action. But if you took that action, you live up to the value instantly. It's impossible not to. And then we make that question, we stick it into our brain, and we know that immediately it makes our brain go, oh crap, I need to answer this. And the question we created is, what have I done today to recognize someone else's leadership? It worked. We went out and the former teachers, former coaches, parents, best friends, the incredibly nice hot dog guy on campus, all of a sudden were being recognized for their leadership. The guy who sold hot dogs on our campus, I have tried for years to figure out how to explain to people his, his attitude, his, uh, like his personality. And now that Ted Lasso exists as a TV show, I am finally able to let people know 
who sold hot dogs on our campus. And there's a character on Apple TV called Ted Lasso, who is the most upbeat, positive human alive. And that's who was selling hot dogs on our campus. And I went up to him on Thursday of this assignment to buy a hot dog. And he pulled it back and he said, what are you doing? I said, what do you mean? I'm just buying a hot dog. And he says, no, three of your students have called me a leader this week. What are you doing? Because my students went out and for the first time ever, I think when we were looking for leaders, we weren't looking for the people in charge of our lives. We were looking for the people who changed the way we experienced our lives, how we felt about it. And that meant that it was the guy who sold hot dogs on campus. One of my students waited for his bus driver for the first nine years of going to school to tell him that he was bullied terribly every day. But the fact that the bus driver would sing all the way to school every day and all the same kids would make fun of him and the bus driver didn't care. My student told him that the only reason I'm going to Harvard for grad school is because every day before I got off this bus, you reminded me that I could be strong enough to not care about those kids. Because what we were trying to recognize was that leadership existed in individual moments of interpersonal impact. Moments of impact, moments of compassion, empowerment, growth, courage. It was in those moments that leadership existed. The problem was we had been taught from a really young age to not call it leadership and to not think of those moments as powerful. We were taught to call them the little things because everyone can do them, right? So they have to be little. And so we call kindness and compassion and growth and empowerment and equity and social justice and self-respect the little things that you do every day. They're not little. They're the biggest things that we do. Every single month we added a different value. That's how the leadership test was born. So the idea became six questions. Impact. What did I do today to recognize someone else's leadership? Growth. What did I do today to move somebody else? Or sorry, what did I do today to make it more likely someone would learn something? And that could be yourself. It could be someone else. Courage. What did I do today that might not work, but I tried it anyway? All right. Empowerment. What did I do today to move someone else closer to a goal? Class. When did I elevate instead of escalating today. Elevating means trying to succeed in the situation. Escalating means trying to win. And very few things mess up success more than someone needing to win. And self-respect was, what have I done today to be good to myself? The mindset that was developed by one of our students was, imagine if every night before you go to bed, you have to prove you deserve another day on this planet. You prove it by passing the leadership test. You get three answers out of six questions by the end of every day. But the key piece is that you know what the questions are in the morning. Like you go out into the world knowing what your challenge is. If we look at it that way, the questions are non-negotiable. And because each of, the, each of the questions is tied to a value, if you get three out of six questions every day, you are living your, a life of leadership. The leadership test says, here's what you do today, even if you have no idea when the pandemic's going to be over, even if you have no idea where you're going to work when this is all done, even if you have no idea what you're going to do after the relationship is over. What it does is like, I know you don't know what the future holds, but you do know who you want to be when you get there. And so let's make sure that every day you are constantly being the person that you hope to be so that when the unknown future arrives, you can be proud of the person that you are there. Am I right to understand that leadership, from your point of view, is not a characteristic uh, of the extraordinary, and it's all about your personal decision to become a leader, to act like a leader. Is that right? Yeah, I think it's about your personal decision to act in a way that positively impacts. And I define leadership as having positive impact. So I'm not even telling people to go out and try to be leaders. I'm telling people to identify the impact they want to have and give themselves a process to make sure they actually do it. And when you do so, my argument is that you are a leader and you're probably already a leader. 
The problem is we were taught to not think of ourselves. And I do want to say this for anybody out there listening, because I get this. When I say everyone can be a leader, I am not saying everyone can be or wants to be a CEO, a senior executive, the head of a company. What I am saying is there is a form of leadership to which we all can and should aspire. The type of leadership I just described with titles and profile and influence, it is a form of leadership. What I'm saying is it's been taught as the only form that matters. And the reason is why on earth would we treat the only form of leadership that matters as the one that hardly anybody gets the chance to do. That is counterintuitive to us as a society, but it does benefit the people who have the type of leadership we've been taught. And so, and I'm not saying they all sit in a room and they're like, oh, how can we manage to do this? I'm saying it's a series of micro decisions and micro actions that people in power take to do their, the good ones do their absolute best to allow people to have more power, but never more than their own and never at the risk of their own. And that doesn't mean they're not great, amazing and extraordinary people. It is a testament to how powerful having privilege and power is. Yeah, the good ones will work hard to give more, but never at the expense of their own. That's basically it. I'm not saying that people should think of it as leadership. I'm thinking they should think of themselves as impactful. And then once we do that, we say impactful as leadership, it's there. It's just, I'm using a word. I'm taking a word that's been taken away from a lot of people and reapplying it to the things that they already do. But what it was is we said, ah, too many people are doing it. That doesn't make it special enough. Let's remove the title from most people. I think I want to bring it back. Almost 12 years ago, you founded Nuance Leadership Development Services, a company that creates leadership curriculum for communities, organizations, and individuals. Uh, can you share the most common leadership demands that organizations come to you with? Right now, um, we created a presentation. A, a client called us and said, hey, you came and you talked about uh, individual leadership in the leadership test. Uh, can you come back and talk? And I said, well, actually, that's what I talk about. So um, like, that's where I, my focus is. And they said, we're just so burnt out and we're so sad and we're so tired and beat up. There's a chapter in your book on self-respect. Um, can you come and teach us that? And that is the most in-demand topic on leadership right now that we are dealing with, and it has been for the last two years, is self-respect the foundation of leadership. It's letting people... Uh, take care of themselves so that they can support the people they love, the people they care about, the people they work with. And so that seems to be right now the largest challenge that people are asking us to come in and, and chat about, that encourage as we face a difficult or, or different, who knows if it's, I'm sure it'll be difficult, but as we face an uncertain future, let's talk about how we can, how we can unlearn the lesson that says don't make mistakes in school to actually start to courageously adjust and change things because we were forced to for two years. But if anything, it also proved us that, to us that things that we thought we could never do, when forced to do them, we can. So why go back to immediately saying, if it's hard, we shouldn't do it anymore? The last two years have proven to us that we can handle massive upheaval and, and make things better. But right now, it's courage and self-respect. The reminder of people that when you're empty, you have nothing to give. And so, that seems to be what most businesses are struggling with now, is getting people to believe in themselves, getting people to recognize that they don't deserve to feel the way that they do, because I think that we as people believe that if we feel crappy or something bad happens to us, it's because we deserve it. But if something good happens, it's because we're lucky. Um, which is weird, because it's the inverse of the way that uh, we often think, which is um, when you know, when our work is rewarded, it's because it was good. And when it wasn't, it's because it was ignored. You know what I mean? Like our brain completely 
mixes things up constantly, but that's the most common things that people are talking about with leadership right now. They, for a long, and people still want us to come in and remind their employees that it's in their actions that leadership exists. Like before the pandemic, a lot of companies were coming to us about empowerment and mentorship programs and how can we more effectively create sustainable and empowering transition programs, right? When we know people are leaving, but then the pandemic hit. And I think businesses started to realize that how people feel is the most significant factor in how they work. That's so true. I actually know a lot of people and I talk to them who are very smart, but uh, one of the challenges is uh, having a low self-esteem. And is there any advice for those uh, smart guys who are listening to our podcast and maybe they face the same problem, how to believe in yourself? By doing things that deserve to make you proud. So like, that's the question, right? Is how do you believe in yourself? I argue that you don't start with a leadership test fully formed because I'll be clear with everybody. My job is to help individuals and organizations create their own leadership test. Like what are their values and what are their questions? But those six questions I share, if you just wanted to like grab it on the first day and get running, those six questions are valuable. But you don't start with six. You start with one and you build. And so for those people who think, oh, I don't have much self-esteem, I'm not worth much, okay, well then what happens if every day for a month you recognize someone else's leadership? You're going to create 30 or 31 or 28, whatever, days of you witnessing your impact. People think that they can sit themselves and think themselves into being more confident or adopt a, a mindset that allows them to no longer feel scared. It's your actions that convince your brain. Like as long as you tell your brain something, it's like, okay, that's a good theory. But when you demonstrate it, it's different. So how do you deal with having low self-esteem? Answer the question, how do I recognize someone else's leadership today, every day for a month? You will watch how you going through the universe every day makes it better because one day, one time every day you recognize in someone else how their contributions matter. You do that for 30 days, you will feel better about yourself. But you know what I just realized? Um, it's not only about believing in people who are around you, but it's also being surrounded by the right mix of the people and being in a community that you actually, um, in a community that makes you thrive, that uh, actually gives you energy. Because I think we both know people who take a lot of your energy, who criticize others, who always are unhappy with something. And if you take your theory, these people actually are not the best to be surrounded by, right? No, and the challenge too is, and I acknowledge this with everyone, is that they can be a part of your life now. When you, like you used to be able to decide that, and now like in, in online communities, you are incapable of, you know, sort of escaping some people as you were before. I learned something really uh, recently that we're, our brain is hardwired to be able to provide empathy effectively to about 200 people because that's how we lived 10,000 years ago, like in small like groups and communities. And so our brain can handle empathy for a relatively limited number of people effectively. And now we live in a world where we are aware of millions and millions of people suffering and our brain struggles with empathy fatigue. Like we feel overwhelmed because if you are a caring person, you have a brain that wants to empathize and wants to support. And now you're aware that there are millions of people in this world that you can't. Uh, you're aware there are millions of toxic people in this world that surround you and it can be a little bit overwhelming. That's one of the challenges, but it has a lot to do with who you do choose to surround yourself with. But I think it's wise that right now we all live in a, in a social world for which our brain is not equipped. 
For most of human history, the biggest threats to our well-being were physical. Uh, now our primary threats for those of us blessed to live in the Western world are our biggest threats to our well-being are social and emotional. And we still have brains that have not adapted because physiology changes so slowly, the social and technological world changes way faster. Our brain is still hardwired to live in a world where we deal with physical threats all the time and we respond to them with overwhelming emotion and force. The problem is, like, when you were walking through the savannah 30,000 years ago and a lioness jumps out and there's two people standing there and one goes, oh, dear, how shall I handle this situation? They got eaten by a lioness. The one who went, holy shit, a lion, and bolted without thinking about it, they just let their emotions take over, they survived. So humans survive the ones who let emotions take over and instinctively keep them alive, which means all the people who thought about situations got eaten. Well, that means that now, over time, we still have a brain that allows anger and jealousy and fear to hijack it because it's supposed to. Because anger and jealousy and fear keep you alive in a world where all your threats are physical. But in a world where all your threats are social and emotional, anger, jealousy, fear, doubt, those are maladaptive. Those get in our way. I'm trying to train my brain to fight against impulses that are thousands of years old, which is don't think, react. Because people who thought and reacted slowly for many years didn't survive. Those who didn't think and reacted quickly survived and were still their grandkids and great-grandkids. And so we have to kind of battle against we're trying to battle against our DNA when we are calm, when we are collected, when we think, when we respond instead of reacting, that actually takes effort. And I, I, I want us to forgive ourselves when we feel jealousy and anger because I worry that the social media and the, like you talk about the people we surround ourselves with, we're surrounded with strangers all the time now. It's hard to not feel judged by a huge group of people all the time. What I'm encouraging people to do is to say, I'm going to focus on at the end of the day, whether or not I can point to moments that I mattered. Because if you string enough of those days together, the jealousy, anger, and fear that you feel constantly isn't as strong. It'll still be there because it's encoded into us. But it allows us to say, wait, my instinct is to do the wrong thing. But I have a system in place that says that's not who I want to be. And the leadership test is a tool that I use, not because I figured because I'm a good guy and I want to teach people how to be as a guy like me. I'm a flawed guy who's tired and angry and scared and frustrated at the world. And I don't want that to drive my behavior. For anyone listening out there, I just want to let you know, I created the leadership test because I almost never want to do the easy or the right hard thing. Like the instinct is always to be like, uh, no. But what I've done is I've defined to myself who I want to be. And I've created a system that acknowledges the fact that I am not instinctively a good guy. And I think most of the people listening would feel they fall into that category. That admire people when they see them online who are like, I start every day only with gratitude. I let hatred out the door. You know what I think when I watch that? Amazing. But it's not me and I'm not there. I want to create something for flawed people. I wanted to give a tool that my better angels can use in their ongoing battle against my demons. Because I don't know why, but dear Lord, my demons are persistent and they seem suspiciously well-funded. And so I just wanted to create something and a mindset and a look at leadership 
that says to people who think less of themselves that it is not that you don't matter. It's that we were taught that the best things about us don't matter as much as money and titles and influence. And that leaves not much for the rest of us, right? Because not everyone gets those things. The idea that we live in a world of scarcity where everything somebody else gets is less for us, it's the source of everything that we're ashamed of on this planet. Greed, jealousy, people building their empires on the exploitation of other people, bullying that starts in playgrounds and goes up through workplaces and ends up in the White House. That is as a result of the idea that we live in an economy of scarcity where there is only so much, anything someone else gets is less for me. I want to talk about an economy of abundance, which means maybe there's only so much money and maybe there are only so many jobs, but there is no limit to the amount of satisfaction, self-worth, happiness available if we separate it from money, titles, and paychecks and attach it to daily behaviors. We are not always going to be in charge of what we get to do every day but we're always gonna be in charge of who we are. Even on the days where everything outside of your control blows up in your face, at least now I have the leadership test. So now when everything outside of my control blows up in my face, I'm still able to look and say, yeah, but in these three moments, I was the man I wanted to be. And some days that's all I get. I'll admit it, some days that is all I get is these three moments where I look at that and say, nothing I wanted worked today. So many things blew up, somebody died, I didn't get that opportunity. Like I failed, I hurt somebody. And now I look and I'm like, but in those three moments, I was the guy I wanted to be. And today was a loss, but it wasn't a waste. I love it. I just love it. And it's all about the choice you decide to make every day. Yeah. And you know what? I'm a recovering alcoholic. And you just hailed it right on the head. Is that you make a single choice every day. It's a huge part of my whole process, day one, etc. Is the idea is that everything I just laid out about the leadership test, you act as if every single day is the first day of your commitment to that. Because on your first day of any commitment, there's an inherent humility, commitment, and forgiveness. And if you screw up, that's okay. Everyone screws up on the first day. You go back and you recommit the next day. But the leadership test is only about your behavior today. You don't worry about how many you answered yesterday and you don't worry about how many you'll answer tomorrow because that distracts you and can diminish you. I have an addiction. Every day I have to fight to not have a drink. What they teach us is that if you don't want to have a drink for the rest of your life, you must choose not to have a drink today. You must make that incredibly difficult, profoundly struggle every day to decide not to have a drink between the time you get up in the morning and the time you go to bed. And all that matters is that decision today. You do not worry and you cannot rest on your laurels if you have done it 2,678 days in a row. That doesn't matter. Also though, I have to have this fight every day and I hope that I have thousands more days left in my life. Which means that I have in the back of my mind the knowledge that I need to have this fight thousands more times. It is that knowledge that makes you quit. It is that knowledge that says when you are broken and weak and you don't think you can make that choice today, what makes you stop, what makes you quit is you've not, not only that you don't think you can't make the choice today, it's all of a sudden the thought pops into your head that says I won't be able to do it tomorrow so who cares. Why bother fighting? Why bother putting myself through this pain and torture right now when tomorrow I'll just fuck up or the day after? I can't do this thousands more times, which is why you never think about that. All you think about is today's decision. And what we do with the leadership test is we take that same daily one day only commitment, day one, because you treat every day of the rest of your life as if it is your first day of recovery. Oh my God, this is so hard to not drink today. Of course it's hard. You're addicted. It's your first day quitting. 
you can do it. It's always going to be hard on the first day, but by looking at every day as if it's the first day, you you just tell yourself, I can do it once. I can do it once, and tomorrow I can fail. But today I can do it. It's the first day. But tomorrow I'll let myself fail. And then tomorrow you wake up and you say, today is the first day. Tomorrow I will let myself fail, but I can make that call today. Thank you so much for such an inspiring conversation. You promised me that you love telling stories and hope that they are useful. I really hope these stories are useful for our listeners. And I just want to say thank you. It was amazing and so much food for thought. I want to say thank you so much. Keep doing this. You're putting ideas out into the world. Thanks to everybody listening. It's an absolute blast. This was Anna Kovaleva with our podcast, A Way Up. And in our next episodes, we will continue to explore how to upgrade our leadership and communication skills and much more. Subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like our work, please let us know. Leave a review and make sure you share your favorite episodes with your friends. A Way Up podcast is produced by A Way and Stone Production. We will be back in two weeks. And thank you so much for listening.